It can also be one of the most stressful times of the year. Uh, usually the stress starts ratcheting up for our family on Thanksgiving Day. Because that's when we have the big discussion about what are we going to do this year in regards to giving gifts among the family. And it used to be very, very simple because everybody just gave everybody a gift. I mean, it was simple. But then what happens is the young kids that are getting all those gifts, they grow up. And they don't want to buy all those gifts. So we have to come up with a new plan, right? And now we draw names. You do that as a family. You draw names. And maybe when we drew names the first year, there really wasn't a price limit. Hey, if you love somebody, buy them the gift you want to buy them. But that's not reasonable. So then it's a $35 limit. Then it's a $30 limit. And then one year it's a $25 limit. And then last year we hit an all-time low. (laughs) Somebody came up with the idea of giving your favorite thing. So you were supposed to go buy your favorite thing, one of your favorite things. Wrap it up. Don't put any name on it. Put it under the tree. And then everybody randomly took a gift. And that's what's your Christmas pro- the gift. Now, here's the problem with that. I got my mom's earrings. <laughs> and I'm confident she wasn't that excited with my cigars. You know what I'm saying? So the whole thing was kind of a fiasco. So I decided after years and years, I'm 58 years old, uh, I finally decided enough is enough. I seceded from the family. And uh, I took some of the family members with me, some of the Smiths, some of the Mitchells, some of the Lees, and we began a new family, the Smitchellees. In fact, we had our first family photo together, and that's our new family. We have unlimited gift giving at Christmas, our part of the family. See, now everybody wants to be in our part of the family. We're like, mm-mm, you had a window of opportunity, you blew it. There's just something about family at Christmas. I think another reason it's stressful is because we know that over the next few days, we're going to find ourselves in situations we don't want to be in. We know that we're going to be in the room with someone, we're going to be sitting across from the table, across the table from someone, and maybe they hurt us or we hurt them. It could be years ago, it's never been talked about, it's never been resolved, so there's this tension, there's the big elephant in the room. Then on top of that, let's be honest, we all have family members that we would like to keep a secret. Isn't that true? I mean, we all have the weird Uncle Al or crazy Aunt Betty, and uh, our heart gets a little warmer every Christmas when we hear they're not going to actually make it home for the holidays, Right? Well, you may be interested to know that Jesus also had some relatives in his past that were a bit embarrassing to the family. And this weekend, we're going to do something a little different. We're going to look at the most dysfunctional member of them all. But what's interesting is that this is the family member that is most often associated with Jesus. This is also the family member who had the most baggage the most junk associated with his name. But what's interesting is this. When Matthew introduces us to the Christmas story in his gospel, he doesn't begin with Jesus in a manger in Bethlehem. He doesn't begin with angels and shepherds. He begins with the genealogy of Jesus. And when Matthew gets to this person that we're going to be talking about for the next few minutes, he kind of just focuses in on this one dysfunctional relative. But he has a reason for it. If you have your Bible this week, turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. If you don't have your Bible, we'll put the verses up on the side screen. Let me show you what I'm talking about. In Matthew chapter 1, understand Matthew is getting ready to tell us the Christmas story. And as he begins, he goes way back into Jesus' past. He goes to the family tree. He gets into the genealogy. And he begins to introduce us to some of Jesus' relatives. And this is what he says in Matthew chapter 1 verse 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David. And if you've grown up in church, you've heard that a million times, but you've probably never paused to think about the significance of that little statement. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David. And later on, as Matthew is working his way through the genealogy, when he actually gets to David, he highlights something interesting about 
David's life. But this is what's interesting. There are a lot of things he could have said about David. He could have talked about David the warrior, David the singer, David the songwriter, David the poet. He could have talked about David being the greatest king in the history of the nation of Israel. But I want to show you what he highlights. Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, he says, This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then he begins the genealogy. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. And you may just read right past that unless you've read Genesis chapter 38 and you realize that Judah had some children with Tamar, but Tamar was Judah's daughter-in-law. Well, they had a couple of kids together. That's kind of scandalous. That's probably not something you're going to talk about around the family lunch, you know, on Christmas Day, right? But it goes on. Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Aminadab. Aminadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, the what? The harlot. And if you remember the story about the city of Jericho and the walls falling down and the two spies snuck into the city, Rahab the harlot was the woman who hid the two spies. So sitting around the family lunch on Christmas, you're probably not going to bring up Rahab the harlot, right? Another scandalous relative in Jesus' past. Then there was Boaz, the father of Obed, which is one of the greatest names ever. Laura and I, I wrestled with Laura over naming one of my boys Obed. I thought Obed Lee, that is the best name in the world. Guaranteed to play in the NFL if you had the name Obed Lee, right? <laughs> Obviously I lost. Whose mother was Ruth, there's a good one. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. But notice Matthew doesn't stop there. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Now I want you just to think about the significance of that statement. All the things that Matthew could have said about David, why would he choose to include that phrase, David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife? Why would he include that? Well, to answer that question, first I have to tell you the story of David. If you have a Bible, you can flip over to 1 Samuel chapter 16, you'll see some of the story. By the way, the story of David uh, took place about a thousand years before Jesus was born in Bethlehem. And so God speaks to the prophet Samuel in 1 Samuel chapter 16, and he basically says, I am through with King Saul. King Saul was the first uh, king of Israel. He had blown it. He had screwed up. God came to Samuel and said, Saul is done. His, names, his days are numbered. We need to get ready for who's going to be the next king of Israel. And this is what he tells Samuel. Samuel, the prophet, I want you to go to Bethlehem. Why Bethlehem? Because that's where David lived. I want you to go down to Bethlehem. I want you to go to the house of a man named Jesse. And one of his boys is going to be the next king of Israel. So sure enough, Samuel, he goes down to the city of Bethlehem and he knocks on the door of Jesse and he says, Jesse, good news, one of your boys is gonna be the next king of Israel. I am here to determine who that boy is. And so uh, Jesse gets his boys and he lines them all up and Samuel begins just to go one by one and he looks at the first one like he's tall like a king, he's handsome like a king, but God's like, yep, it's not him. And he goes to each boy and God's like, nope, not him, not him, not him. And, and Samuel is very, very confused because he's passed all the boys and he hasn't picked up the vibe, he hasn't got word from God who is going to be the king. So Samuel says to Jesse, is there anybody missing? Anybody not accounted for? And, and, and Jesse's like, well, just, just one, David. He's kind of the baby. He's out taking care of the sheep. 
And so he says, well, we'll send someone to go get him. We're going to stand right here until this David kid shows up. And David comes running back. He's got his harp under his arm, which I am confident always bothered his dad, that he was always playing a harp. But anyway, that's a whole other message another time. And David comes running in with his harp from tending the sheep. And, and Samuel looks at him and says, you're it. You are going to be the next king of Israel. And David's like, okay, whatever. And he runs back out to take care of the sheep, right? Well, sure enough, years later, Eventually, this little snot-nosed shepherd boy grows up to become the next king of Israel. Well, years after David has been king, and we talked about this a few weeks ago, he's looking out the window of his palatial palace, and he thinks something is really wrong with this picture because I'm living in this incredible palace, but God is still living in a tent. And we talked about the fact that when the Hebrew people were slaves in Egypt, Moses led them out. They were on a journey to the promised land. They didn't realize it was just a few days journey. They turned it into 40 years, right? But God knew that they needed to learn how to worship him. So God basically restricted, confined himself to a box the Ark of the Covenant, and they could carry God with them wherever they went. They also built a tent, which was the tabernacle, and they could set up the tabernacle. They could put the Ark there. They could worship God, and then when they moved on, they could pack the tent up. They could put God. They had some posts and they, poles, and they would put God on the shoulders, and they would walk until they got to the next place where they would worship God again. All these years, centuries later, God is still living in this tent, and David's thinking there's just something wrong about this, so he begins to make plans to build God a temple, to build God a permanent home, and so so we pick up the story, 2 Samuel chapter 7, beginning in verse 4. But that night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Now, Nathan was a prophet, a different prophet. Came to Nathan the prophet saying, go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day I bought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I have been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from the tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. We just looked at that story. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all of your enemies from before you. Now notice this statement. Now I will make your name great like the names of the greatest men on earth. So God through Nathan says to David, I am going to make you great. You're going to go down in history as one of the greatest men who's ever lived on planet earth. Now let me just ask you a question. Before I even started this message this weekend, how many of you, by a show of hands, how many of you had heard of King David? Just raise your hand if somewhere in your life you've heard of King David. I mean, how cool is that? We are a part of this prophecy. People all over the world know who King David is. But this is what's interesting. God predicted this was going to happen 3,000 years ago. 3,000 years ago, God said, I will make your name great like the names of the greatest men on earth. And I point that out for those of you here this weekend and you don't believe that the Bible is true. That is an incredible coincidence, isn't it? God said to David 3,000 years ago, I'm going to make your name great. I bet most of us could not name two other kings, maybe one other king in the history of Israel, but every one of us know who King David is. Verse 11, the Lord declares you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. In other words, David, you're going to have a long lineage. And for generations, people all over the world, they're going to understand, they're going to know your name. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, in other words, when you die, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you 
your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And he's referring to Solomon. Solomon is the one who actually built the house, the temple for God. I will be his father. He will be my son. Now notice this. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men with floggings inflicted by human hands. In other words, God says to David, listen, if your ancestors, if your descendants disobey me, just understand, I'm gonna disobey, I'm gonna, I'm gonna discipline them. I'm not gonna just let them get away with it. I'm gonna hold them accountable and I'm gonna use the surrounding nations to do that. But notice verse 15. But my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne, David, will be established forever. In other words, God says, David, when you or one of your descendants, when you disobey, when you stray, man, I am going to discipline you and I'm going to discipline you like crazy because I have great expectations for you. But regardless of what you do, I am not breaking my promise David, I am promising you, I will establish your name forever. Your name will be made great. By the way, now you understand why Jewish people in the first century were expecting a Messiah from the line of David. It's because they knew from teaching that God had made this unconditional promise, this unconditional covenant with David. Everybody understood that. And if you know the story, you know that about four chapters after this great uh, pronouncement is made by Nathan to David that your name's going to be great. About four chapters later, David does everything a person can possibly do to try to get God to break his promise in that covenant. Because four chapters later, when David should have been at war with his men, he decided to do something unique, something he had never done before. He decided to stay back at the palace. And that night, at the cool of the evening, he's walking around on the roof of the palace and he looks over into his neighbor's yard and he sees this incredibly beautiful woman taking a bath. And he calls over one of his aides and says, who is that hottie next door taking a bath? And he says, well, that's Bathsheba. That's Uriah's wife. You know, your friend Uriah, that's his wife, David. And David says, why don't you invite her over for a nightcap? And you know the story. They slept together. They committed adultery. A few weeks later, Bathsheba shows up to the palace and she says, hey, David, I'm pregnant. And David thinks, no biggie. I'll just, I'll just cover it up. After all, I'm the king. So what does he do? He sends a message. He brings Uriah home from the battlefront. He makes up a reason to meet with him. He gets him drunk. And then he tells Uriah, listen, it's too late for you to return to the battle tonight. Why don't you go home, get a good night's sleep in your bed, Catch up with things with Bathsheba, if you know what I'm talking about. And David is automatically assuming, sure, he's been away at war. He's going to come home. They're going to sleep together. Bathsheba's going to be pregnant. Everybody will just automatically assume that it's her husband, Uriah's baby. But David gets up the next morning and discovers that Uriah didn't go home. Instead, he slept right outside David's gate. And the next morning, David's like, what are you doing here? What are you, why are you sleeping outside my gate? Why didn't you go home like I told you to? And Uriah's like, how in the world can I go home and sleep in the comfort of my home with my beautiful wife when I have men that are asleep on the battlefield? Well, the next day, David tries again, and he gets him drunk, and he sends him home. And the following morning, David once again gets up, and he finds Uriah outside the gate. He refused to go home. And David's like, I got a problem but I'll fix it. 
And so David sat down and he began to write some orders to his commander, Joab. And the order said this, tomorrow in the heat of the battle when you're attacking the city, have everybody withdraw except Uriah and his men. And David's assuming when everybody else withdraw, Uriah will be a sitting duck and he will be killed. And he folded up and he sealed those orders, gave them to Uriah. And Uriah literally, you read the story, delivered his, his death notice back to Joab, the commander. And the next day, in the heat of the battle, just as David had asked, everybody re retreated except Uriah, and he was killed. And David gets word of that. And David thinks, wow, that was close. Man, I dodged a bullet. But 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 27 says, but the thing David had done displeased the Lord. And so the Nathan, Nathan the prophecy, David thinks nobody knows, nobody knows. He took Bathsheba in. She, everybody will think it's my baby. Nobody knows. But Nathan the prophet shows up again at the house of David. And he says, hey, David, you need to understand. God knows. He knows about the affair. He knows about the baby. He knows about the murder. God knows everything. And there's a reason that the Bible says that David was a man after God's own heart. He falls on his knees. He repents. If you've ever read Psalm 51, it's a great prayer of repentance where he basically says, forgive me, you know, restore to me the joy of my salvation. And God's response is, David, I'm going to forgive you because that's what I do. I am a forgiving God. But just as I promised you, I'm going to discipline you. I need you to understand you can never do something like this again. These were the consequences of David's sin. This is how God disciplined him. The baby that David conceived with Bathsheba died. Amnon, David's son, raped his half-sister Tamar. Absalom, who was Tamar's half-brother, hears about the rape, and he goes and he murders his brother Amnon. Absalom, David's son, becomes so disgusted with his dad over how his dad is handling the family issues, he overthrows his father, and David runs for his life into exile. And then fifth, David runs from Absalom. Until Joab, his commander, one day kills Absalom so David can return to his throne. So think about it. David endured the death of a baby, the rape of a daughter, the murder of a son by another son, the rebellion of Absalom, and then finally Absalom, who he so loved, was killed. But you got to understand, even though God punished David for what he did and his punishment was brutal, he never broke his promise. His promise remained because God is a God who keeps his promises in spite of sin. God is a God who keeps his promises in spite of sin. So 990 years later, a man named Joseph, who was in the direct line of, of sinning, murdering, adultery committing, unfaithful King David, took his wife to be Mary, to the city of Bethlehem. By the way, by this time in the first century, it wasn't even called Bethlehem. It was referred to as the city of David. And they show up in the city of David because Joseph needed to register for the census. And we know the story. That night, the baby Jesus was born. And he's the great, 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 grandson of David. The king the adulterer, the murderer, because God keeps his promise and the line of David is established forever through the Messiah. No wonder Matthew draws our attention to this huge indiscretion 
to put it mildly, in the life of a man who's the most closely associated with Jesus. I mean, how do you skip over this? How could you simply say, Jesse had a son named David, and David had a son named Solomon? It was as if Matthew thought, I have got to draw the attention of my readers to this. Not just that Jesus is related to David, he had to draw our attention to the fact that David may be the biggest sinner of them all. Yet in spite of his sin, in spite of his disobedience, God kept his promise. And the reason that this is so important to Matthew is because he is getting ready to try and convince first century Jewish people God does not want you to approach him on the basis of your personal righteousness. God is not interested in you approaching him on the basis of your goodness. I mean, you have to understand for the Jewish person, <laughs> there was Abraham and there was David. One day there would be the Messiah. They were the big three. And so Matthew's message is this. Not even the great King David could come to God on the basis of his personal righteousness. Not even the great King David could come to God on the basis of who he was. In fact, the only reason we even know the name of King David is because of the mercy and the grace and the forgiveness of God. And yeah, God disciplined him. And he does that to people that he loves. But he did not back off on his promise. And so understand as you read that genealogy, David is the perfect example of the fact that God has invited us into a personal relationship with him. And that relationship is not based on our consistency. That relationship is not based on our personal righteousness. It is all about the mercy and the grace and the forgiveness of God. And Matthew is writing this thinking, <laughs> I'm getting ready to tell my audience about a brand new promise. Yes, without a doubt, Jesus is going to be born, but he's also going to die on a cross. And he's going to die on a cross to offer a new promise, a new covenant. And this time it's not just for the Jews. This time it's for all of mankind. And the promise is this, because of Jesus' death, everyone is going to be welcomed into a relationship with God. And it's going to be a relationship that's characterized by grace and mercy and forgiveness. It is an unconditional promise. And Matthew wants people to know, just as God kept his promise to David, and he did, we testified to that by raising our hands saying, we all know who King David is. Matthew says, God is going to keep his promise to you. This is how the angels put it in Luke chapter 10, verse 10. Jude chapter 2, verse 10, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all. That word all there in the Greek means all, okay? <laughs> great joy for all the people. I mean, understand as you sit here this weekend, you are a part of the all. You with your baggage. You with your secret. You with your sin. You with that year in your life that you wish you could go back and undo. You in that embarrassing relationship. You with that embarrassing situation you pray no one ever finds out about. The angels proclaimed, I bring you good news of great joy for all people. Verse 11, today in the town of David, the biggest sinner on the planet a thousand years ago, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angels praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. And the only reason that God could promise peace is because he's getting ready to do something about the biggest obstacle 
to peace. He is getting ready to remove the biggest obstacle to peace. What's the obstacle to peace? It was and still is sin. God is getting ready to remove the guilt and the condemnation of sin. And he was getting ready to invite people to abandon the, you know, I'm trying to earn peace with God system. And I guess every one of us sitting here this weekend, we know what it's like to be jumping through those hoops, getting on that treadmill, somehow trying to earn peace with God. We think things like, I'm going to do better this year. I'm going to try harder. I'm going to pull myself up by my bootstraps. I'm going to make it happen. I am going to earn peace with God. I'm going to be so good, so faithful. God is just going to, I'm going to impress him so much. He can't help but be in a relationship with me. God says it doesn't work that way. But I've got good news for all people. Not just Jewish people. Not just Christian people. Not just holy people or church people. Not just Baptist people. Not just Catholic people. I have good news for people who don't even know the Old Testament from the New Testament. I have good news for people who don't even own a Bible. I have good news for unholy people. I have good news for inconsistent people. I am offering peace to all men. Because I'm going to remove the obstacle to peace. I'm going to take care of the sin issue through my gift to you, my son Jesus Christ. Now here's the challenge. You will never know the peace of having your sin removed as long as you're trying to negotiate your peace with God. Let me just say that again. You will never experience that peace of having your sin removed, your sin forgiven, as long as you're trying to negotiate your peace with God. As long as you're trying to negotiate negotiate your relationship with God, You will never find peace. I don't care how good you are. I don't care how consistent you are. I don't care who you're related to. I don't care how many times you've been to mass. I don't care how many times you've been to confession. I don't care how many times you've been baptized. I am telling you there is no peace with God as long as you're trying to negotiate that peace through your own efforts and your own deeds. Peace with God is only found when we embrace God's promise. And his promise is this. I have forgiven you through the death of my son. And I am inviting you into a relationship with me based on his death. And just as I kept my promise to David, I promise you peace. And not only that, I promise you eternal life when you die with me through my son, Jesus Christ. That's the message of Christmas. You say, Mike, (laughs) you just don't know me. You have no idea what I've done. You have no idea how bad I am. Let me just say, read the story of David. And David, David is the person most closely associated with Jesus, but not even he could get in on the basis of who he was. Just like us, he needed to experience the mercy and the grace and the forgiveness of God. I'm telling you, at the end of the day, it's not about how good you are and it's not about how bad you are. It's not about what you've done. It's not about what you haven't done. It's all about what God has done for us through his son, Jesus Christ. And if you're sitting here this morning and you're thinking, this sounds too good to be true, then you understand it. If this sounds too good to be true, then you get the message of Christmas. That's why Paul, the brightest mind of the first century, when he wrote 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 15, when he said, thanks be to God for this this gift, I can't even think of the words to describe it. I'll just call it indescribable gift. Let's bow together.
I don't know what brings you here this weekend. I don't know what your journey and life has been to bring you to this point. But I just want you to know God desperately, desperately wants to be in a relationship with you. He desperately wants you to experience the life that he created you to experience. He wants you to experience the peace of knowing that your sin is forgiven, that there no longer is any barrier between you and God, that you can be restored into a relationship with him so that you will feel complete and whole. And not only that, he wants you to, he wants you to enjoy the peace of knowing that when you die, when you take that last breath, you will spend all eternity with him in a place called heaven. And I don't know what you think about Christmas, but I want you to understand that's the message. That's why the baby came. He came to die. And maybe this morning you're like, that's what I want. I want peace. Regardless of what I've done in the past, I, I want to know that, that I somehow have this peace that God accepts me where I am and will go from there. I want the peace of knowing that my eternal destination is taken care of. If that's what you desire today, I'm going to lead you in a prayer. And you can just repeat these words after me. There's nothing magic about these words, but I'm just saying if you communicate these words to God from your heart, he will bring you peace. Just repeat after me. Heavenly Father, I believe that you are the great promise keeper. As you kept your promise to David, I believe you will keep your promise to me to forgive me and to accept me and to love me. I will no longer come to you or avoid you on the basis of what I have or haven't done. Instead, I will approach you boldly because of what you've done for me through your Son, Jesus Christ, my Savior and my peace. Father, I pray right now for those who just prayed that prayer. And as I said, Father, there's nothing magic about the prayer, but if it's coming from their heart that they so desire to be restored in a relationship to you, if they so desire to sense that forgiveness and that peace, that right now they are your child. And you're going to take them under your wing. And you're going to begin to work in them. And you're going to take them on as a project to become the people that you've created them to be. And Father, in and still within them right now, the peace of knowing that even if they were to die before they got out of the parking lot today, they would spend all eternity with you in a place called heaven. Thank you for this story. Thank you for this reminder of your grace in our lives. Thank you for the Christmas season where we are reminded daily that it's not about what we do for you. It's all about what you have done for us. I pray that we would learn to live in your grace and mercy and forgiveness. And I pray that it would characterize our relationships with each other. It's in your precious holy name of your son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Amen.